1: To It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots editor in chief, here with the managing editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. And today we have as our guest author, academic, crunk feminist, and 2017 Root 100 honoree, Brittany Cooper, author of Eloquent Rage, a Black Feminist discovers her superpower, which has been on must-read lists since it was published in the spring of 2018 and recently made it to the bestsellers list this June.
0: You know, Danielle, I have been a huge fan of Britney's since pretty much forever. And I got to interview her about Eloquent Rage back when it was released in 2018. But, you know, I think this is such a special book and I'm so thrilled that it reached the bestsellers list. I I think it's long overdue
1: and well-deserved. I definitely agree. It's about time more Black women, especially Black female authors, got their shine. And Britney is someone who I've been following for years and she's incredible uh, with her wit and her insight and all of her musings. So I'm so excited that we're going to have her with us today. So, Brittany, hey, <laughs> welcome to It's Lit. Thanks for having me. Let's get lit. I know that's right. Let's get lit. All about that literature, literally. That's what we're about on It's Lit. And I want to congratulate you on your new bestseller status. Thank you. Thank you. Pop's call. to kick things off we have our first question that we ask every guest if it's lit and the question is a simple one but you know it might not be so simple if you're a lover of books like we are what is a book that you read that either blew your mind or changed your entire perspective on everything Mm the game changer book. Yeah, I've been rereading this book
2: actually. So I was in college, it's, it was James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. I love that book and I loved it so much that I had an assignment for class where I was supposed to write a five page paper about a novel and I wrote about The Fire Next Time. And the professor gives it back and he's like, this is a good paper, but it's not a novel. This You didn't write about a novel, but he let me redo the paper. But I loved that book of essays and I still love it to this day. Because you know most writers, most black writers a love affair with james baldwin and i am among them
1: so very understandable he's 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 among the greats he is the great he's the he's the goat i would argue by
0: i would also argue that james baldwin is the goat um and you know Brittany, i'd say that you are right there behind him you know when we first spoke about eloquent rage it was early 2018 when you had just Published the book, I believe. And um, at the time, I'm, and I'm proud to say that The Root was one of the many outlets that considered it a must read. And obviously, a lot has changed since then. You know, we are now not only in the midst of a global pandemic and an election year, but we're also uh, in amidst a new wave of protests uh, against uh, racial injustice. And once again, your work is proving really, really relevant right now. Uh, and that also includes your two previous books. Um, so I have to ask you, how does it feel to unexpectedly have a bestseller on your hands two, two years after the fact? (laughs) And, uh, and why do you think eloquent rage is resonating? Like, why is it, why is it so important right now?
2: I mean, it's a good question. And even though it was exciting, it's bittersweet. I mean, you know, as I said, when I learned that I made the bestseller list, I'm very happy to be on the list with everybody black. You know that I was on the list the week that like all the race books began to make the list. And that's because George Floyd had been killed and the country was on fire with people's rage about that. And then we you know, tuned into the story of Breonna Taylor that had happened a couple of months prior. And so it was just rage upon rage. And so part of the thing that I always am thinking about as a writer is that so much of my public writing career has taken off in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin being killed and his killer being let free. That's when I really started writing for a broader public audience beyond the Crunk Feminist Collective where I wrote for a number of years pretty exclusively. And so what does it mean to be a writer and an artist in the moment when, when you're being called to testify on behalf of Black people who are being killed, right? And to bear witness to the story of that and the trauma of it and the rage of that. But I've tried to do that with, I hope, a level of integrity. So that's why I think Eloquent Rage resonated, because I think that our people have been, we've been in the house for months and months, basically waiting for this onslaught of a terrible thing to happen, which is a terrible thing to do to anyone psychologically. And then we are given a front row seat and plenty of time to watch the police then just snuff out Black life. And given those two things, I think people felt wells and wells of rage. That is always our constant condition if we think about Baldwin saying something similar, but we felt it acutely and I think people wanted language and a place to kind of process that. And I think Eloquent Rage is a book that helps people to do that. So.
0: Well, it's a favorite for
2: sure of mine. Um,
1: And, you know, again, we were saying this is a a pretty pivotal moment. (laughs) Don't you think, Danielle? It's definitely a pivotal moment. (laughs) I mean, there's so like 2020 is a year of so many like moments is the nice word for it. Right. (laughs) More like complications and tragedies. <laughs> and, we're, 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 okay. and, and entanglements. Okay. And entanglements. This is, this, is, this is a year of entanglements right now. But um, I want to talk about something that was actually positive for a lot of people that unfolded yesterday. Um, even though this, you know, won't be a big, well, it's it'll still be a story, but not as big by the time our podcast airs, you know, we're having a historic moment in American politics less than 24 hours ago. Your fellow Howard University alumna. You. <laughs> Kamala Harris was announced as the running mate for Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. How did you react to the news? And what do you think this reflects about Black women and their political power?
2: Mm, yeah, it's a good question. So, look, I, I think it is historic. I, I mean, I'm proud that a Howard alum is out here kicking butt and taking names. You know, the whole Biden thing, him being the nominee has been fairly hard to take because I think that we had an opportunity to really be more progressive. And so I haven't been super excited about him as a candidate, but I am very happy that he took the that he listened to black women. So I did sign onto a letter in the summer, back in the summer, asking for Biden to choose a black woman as woman his VP because black women are the most loyal voting constituency of the Democratic Party. And so I think we needed this win. And so, in that regard, like I, you know, I think it's celebratory. You know, I have critiques of Kamala. I think we should all, as good citizens and um, folks who are politically engaged, have critiques of candidates. I also think that people are hard as hell on Black women. And so, I'm trying to balance our right to have a critical perspective with the way that we allow white mediocrity to proceed unchecked all the time. And then we hold black women to an unreasonable standard. And I'm uninterested in doing that to Kamala. So, you know, at this point, I'm interested in surviving the pandemic and doing so in a way where there's like a kind of social safety net that can actually protect people. I think Biden and Harris will do that. And so I'm all right about it, you know, notwithstanding, really picking other candidates kind of in the primaries. I, you know, I have made my peace with this and, you know, and I think Kamala will, will take good care of us for the most part, you know?
1: Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have, have had to make their peace with, <laughs> with us and with Joe Biden. Because um, I agree, like, there was such a wide Democratic field that was offered to us, you know, that was much, it was a, it was a deep bench, and the fact that, you know, Biden just happened to be the one that rose to the top really was more, to me, more reflective of Black people, particularly Black women, being like hardcore pragmatists. Yeah. As we like are. They, yes. We voted with our minds, not necessarily with our hearts on this one. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I you know, I like the, the, the sort
2: of hot take about this that said, like, this is black people telling us what we think that white people will allow black people to have as opposed to what we would choose if we were free and clear to choose for ourselves. Um, and that rings true to me. I also think that we have to realize the thing that Kamala actually signals, there was a great piece in the New York Times by my good friend and colleague Melanie Price, Dr. Melanie Price, who said, look, like Kamala's also the culmination of lots of black women gaining political power in this moment though. And so, If we actually believe that, if we believe that all of this sort of behind-the-scenes organizing Black women have been doing, plus our very sort of step-by-step rise in politics over the last couple of decades means we get to make demands on the Democratic Party, then now let's actually make some demands, right? Let's not play small, because once you actually have power and leverage, which we have positioned ourselves to have, let's use the leverage, and let's not only use it for kind of representational politics. It's like, get somebody that looks like us, but let's really use it for pushing a policy agenda. And I do think that's happening, but I also try to remind myself that policy agendas don't typically actually, um, they're not radical from the top up, top down, they're typically radical from the bottom up. And so some of the things we want, we're going to have to build the groundswell for them in local electoral politics, plus our movements. And I do think that they will make their way into our broader kind of, presidential politics that's my hope
0: you know and I think that's that's really I actually do think that kind of drives home why eloquent rage is so still so very relevant you know two years after it's publishing because you know you wrote in the preface in the prologue or you know you said this book is for women who know shit is fucked up these women want to change things but don't know where to begin and you know as you just acknowledged like black women have been we have begun. You know, we saw this in 2018. By the end of that same year, you know, we saw this huge blue wave, many of which were Black women. Again, we're seeing that with this upcoming election, this like kind of like a record number of Black women running for office. Because as you acknowledge, Black women are the backbone of not only our, our own communities, but America and its democracy itself, right? So do you feel that the world and specifically America, the America that we live in and are now somewhat trapped in because of COVID-19. Do you feel like it's, it's finally awakening to that fact and taking us seriously?
2: You know, it depends. I mean, I'm not a cynic. So the optimist in me is like, yes, Black women are having a moment. But really what I actually think is that America loves to hand us the country and say, here, you fix it when everything is going to shit, right? So this is what happened with Barack Obama. I mean, he inherits the country in a moment when we're in a terrible financial crisis. And then they're like, well, this ship is sinking, so maybe you can bail us out. Then he does. And there's resentment about it so deep that what the response is, is to Trump, you know, is Trump. And while I think that's an oversimplification of a lot of complicated things, it, it's not untrue. And I also think that that is part of what's happening now. I mean, the country is on the swiftest descent into fascism that we've seen ever, I would argue, thinking historically. And so now the party is like, well, let's go ahead and be diverse. You know, See, let's see what you can do with the <laughs> with the party. Sure, a Black woman can be second in command to this old white man that, you know, may last one term. Of course. Like, I think right. this is how institutions do black people, and I specifically think this is how they do black women, in the sense that America has this deep sense of black women as people who come in to clean up the messes that they make. That has historically been our position. I call it us doing the custodial work of democracy. And what I hope is that Kamala. Yeah, I mean, not- you,
0: you say that, yeah.
2: Yeah, I hope that Kamala will not be constricted by that and that she will be able to do the thing that Black women typically do, which is that we clean up the mess and then we we make some new possibilities. So I believe in that posture or approach from black women even though i typically just think america gives us shit and then tells us they gave us a trophy yeah i mean they tell us
0: to clean it up and 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 the your options are to either do so or become the scapegoat right like that's the, that those are your two No,
2: <laughs> know it's like if we win well that's the truth vote vote but if we if we lose y'all didn't vote it's like we vote we're not the problem <laughs> yeah.
1: exactly exactly Speaking on the power of Black women, you unapologetically, and I love you for this, call yourself a Black feminist, capital B, capital F. And we are all familiar with the refrain that feminism is for white women. Why do you feel it's so important for women of color, specifically Black women, to be able to claim that title and space for themselves?
2: Yeah, look, I I mean, I always kind of say this to this question, which is, If you look 100 years ago, Black women have always made the argument that our race and our gender matter. That's everybody from Mariah Stewart to Sojourner Truth to Anna Julia Cooper. Those are all Black women who did the bulk of their activism and writing in the 19th century. And all of them said that race and gender matter together, and that we should be trying to think about the particular condition of Black women. So this idea for us that people have gotten that white women are the only people who ever thought that gender mattered or gender was a site of oppression, clearly just haven't read. So I one, because I think patriarchy is a system that deeply shapes Black women's lives, I think that if we're talking about freedom, then we got to get rid of all the systems that beset us. So that means that I feel compelled to be a feminist, but I also recognize that white women do things that are terrible and that they're untrustworthy and often treacherous and duplicitous, in part because of their proximity to white male power and their desire to maintain that power. And so what I like to point people to is that there is a black feminist tradition, a tradition of black women who have written and said, here's how we think about gender as being relevant to our lives or what have you. And so, You know, I just, I find the bellyaching about what does it mean to be a black feminist in this moment, you know, to be so challenging because I'm like, women are getting assaulted at every side. We were literally in danger of losing abortion rights collectively this summer because, uh, and that was a ca- the, ca- the Louisiana abortion case that came to the Supreme Court was rooted in a um, in an abortion clinic that's in my hometown of Shreveport, Louisiana. And we know that black women need and use abortion services disproportionately in this country. And just that alone is a reason to be a feminist because that's the outgrowth that feminist movement building is having reproductive justice. But, you know, even, I mean, when we think about pay inequity, when we think about uh, issues of domestic violence, all of those things are things that beset Black women's lives. And there are things that don't get talked about in the mainstream of, of Black politics. And Black feminism says you are, you are not going to get free unless you bring everybody. And there is no Black Freedom Project if you don't care about Black women. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm on board with that.
0: You know, uh, it's so interesting that you, you were talking about how those issues don't make it into the mainstream. Because one way that they have, albeit through, you know, a very privileged lens, is via Beyonce right? And you have referred to Beyonce in eloquent rage, you refer to Beyonce as your feminist muse. <laughs> and you specifically, you know, were are calling out the criticism that some other black feminists have leveled against her. And it's so interesting that we're talking to you now, because obviously, black is king just came out and a whole new onslaught of criticism about her as a capitalist and exploiting the continent. What is your take on that?
2: look, I still love Beyonce and black is king only cemented it, you know, and here, here's the thing. I am an academic and I know that I'm supposed to do this performance of like, let's be critical. Let's be balanced. Everyone can be critiqued. I just think that there are black girls and black women get to have some people that we just ride for unapologetically. And that's a black girl that I've just decided that I'm going to be out here riding for. Now, if tomorrow she does some jankiness, then I'm willing to retract this. Right. But like, You know, here's what I like about Beyonce. And it isn't about our inability to critique her. I like that she actually seems to me when I look across her body of work and I have literally been a Beyonce fan since the very first Destiny's Child album in 1998 when I was a high school kid, right? I think that she listens to the criticisms and I think she responds in the art. So she doesn't get on social media and go back and forth with people. She doesn't give a bunch of interviews or she talks to people. But every level of the art, she rises to the occasion of the critique. So folks said that in Beyonce 2013, that album that her feminism was vacuous and and it was a a gimmick and a stunt. And so she comes out in 2016 with Lemonade to sort of deepen that project and with Formation, which has an overtly political message. And then you see her doing Coachella, Beachella, and Homecoming and doubling down on her connection to black institutions. Because there was a moment in her career where she was doing those commercials and talking about her like exotic blackness and she was black, native and Creole. And what was on offer there was the idea that she could sort of transcend Blackness because she was a pop star. And rather than do that, like other pop stars have done, she actually says, no, thank you. I reject your transcendental race politics. I'm blackity black. She sings about it in the songs. She doubles down on it in the art. And in case we have missed it and refused it, then you get black as king. So I see a woman who is, interested deeply in politics and is trying to figure out how to make space for herself in a, in a Black political arena as an artist. So she tried to make space for herself in feminism as a person who did not learn it in elite spaces and learned it by looking on YouTube, as she said. And now she is trying to think about herself in the range of Black traditions, spiritually, diasporically, and otherwise. And I love that Beyonce respects her critics more than her critics respect her. That feels clear to me. And it feels clear because the way that you show respect for people is that you actually take the critique and you grow. And I don't think she gets credit for the fact that Every time I can look at any project she has and then look at what the narrative was about that project. And then if I look at the next project, I see the response really clearly. And so frankly, all of these folks who are like, you know, she just doesn't have an understanding of Africa and it's the Wakandification of the continent, they're boring and they don't have anything to say. And and, and publications have told them that you can get clicks by being, you know, by saying hateful shit about Beyonce. I'm like, it's one of the most nuanced you know, treatments coming out of African-American culture of of contemporary African life that we've seen. It is not perfect, but no art is. And I just think we got to get a girl some credit and I, I'm willing to, yeah. to her generously, you know? You know, I so, appreciate yeah, you.
0: I do too. I, I actually, I appreciate that as well. Cause I think to myself, I didn't see Black is King and see Beyonce posing as African. I saw her as an African-American woman on the continent surrounding herself by African culture and allowing it to inform her and vice versa, as she already has. There's plenty of Beyonce fans in Africa. Uh, But, you know, we are all also we have another major pop cultural moment happening right now that I think is very relevant to any black feminist conversation, which is the very explicit WAP. (laughs) that was uh, delivered by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion. And obviously there's been a lot of debate about this. The conservatives are like losing their shit. Where do you think this sits in the uh, Black feminist, or in your case, maybe the crunk feminist lexicon?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's crunk and feminist. Like who doesn't, I mean, if, you know, if pussy is what you're into, who doesn't want WAP? I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. Like, I, I mean, it feels really clear. Part of the, I- I'm actually shocked given how much work feminists have been doing in the public sphere over the last decade that we haven't seen the needle move more on this conversation and that people are, you know, it's just a bunch of posing and and, and posturing and, and, and faux outrage. You know, I'm like, look, people have sex. We know that there are some best practices and there are some worst practices and best practices typically involve why. And that's what I teach kids about sexuality in my classes you know, I spend a lot of time talking to them about like the importance of foreplay and the infor- importance of lubricate like straight up. So I don't know what people are talking about. And if they're, if they're mad about, you know, sort of black women's celebration of their own bodies. I, you know, I think that there's a lot of anxiety about, uh, essentially about black women rising in, in, in culture in this moment. I actually think that that's more what this is about, that you have an, a new moment in hip hop, where Black women MCs are really at the forefront of the conversation. They're who's selling, they're who people are talking about. And anytime you see women rise in culture, typically there's a male backlash that involves policing the body heavily. And I don't think hip hop is immune to that because it's been such a masculine space, save the 90s where we had lots of female MCs. But the response to the 90s was literally to push all of those women out of hip hop and then to just have Nikki for like, you know, almost 10 years. Now we're seeing all of these wonderful young MCs and some of them are queer, which means that they've put sexuality on their terms on the table. And I think dudes are very uncomfortable with that. I also think holy rollers are uncomfortable with it, but I do think, I mean, the song is fine. Like I love Southern hip hop. I like Meg a lot. You know, I fucks with Meg. I like Cardi. Um, I, I could have used a different sample, but like, I like the song, I like the video, and I just, you know, and I do think that we should always count it a win when Black women feel the freedom to have robust conversations about their sexuality in the public. I mean, part of the freedom, you know, like we have to read in the trajectory and the trajectory of Black women's sexuality in this country has been that for the first couple hundred years of it, we didn't own anything that happened to our vaginas whatsoever, to our bodies. We didn't get to control who we slept with or the terms of our sexual pleasure. So even though it may feel ghost to other people, to me, in that broad freedom trajectory, Black women being able to say, this is mine, I control what I do with it and who does whatever to it, and I want the best conditions for me to get an orgasm. You know, I think that's part of a freedom project. I
0: love it. <laughs> I love orgasms as a freedom project. I'm I love it. it as
1: well. <laughs> So your book, Brittany, is more relevant than ever, you know, and it just covers so much ground from Black female friendships, classism, survivor's guilt, generational trauma, and you also touch on the often imbalanced nature of protest culture in which Black women are often displaced as we center the trauma of Black men. Do you feel that paradigm has been shifting any
2: recently? You know, I have an unpopular response to this, which, which is that I don't feel that it's shifted nearly enough. Um, yes, we have spent the last several months talking about Breonna Taylor, but people have also been doing this perverse memeing of what has happened to Breonna Taylor in ways that I don't know that we did to Black men and boys who had been killed by police. So I think that The protest work of local Louisville activists around Breonna Taylor is to be celebrated. And I think that the that the level of visibility that that case has enjoyed, even to the point of like Oprah for the first time in 20 years, not being on the cover of her own magazine, right? I think Oprah had a Breonna Taylor moment in the way that Barack Obama had a Trayvon Martin moment, right? Because, you know, if you put Trayvon Martin up against a Barack Obama, he could have been his kid, legitimately could have been his kid, right? And I feel like if you put Breonna Taylor up against an Oprah, you'd be like, y'all could have been cousins, right? And just literally physically. So I get that way in which she resonates. So that part, I think, is a win. But we've seen, we've still seen, so we lost Black women throughout the summer, trans Black women. We lost the young woman, Toyin Salau in Florida, you know, who was a protester, right? We had Iyana Dior, a young Black trans woman who was attacked at a protest in Minnesota by a bunch of dudes who were out protesting. And they think to themselves, let's stop and beat this trans girl up because, I mean... We just out here protesting for black lives, but her life doesn't matter. So I think we have a lot more work to do. And I got some pushback from some activists who were like, Breonna Taylor means that we're we're changing the course of history. And then I think about that and I think, but what about 15 year old Grace, the the teenager in Michigan on the outskirts of Detroit, who was locked up in the middle of a pandemic because she didn't do her homework. She was on probation and then the judge was like, well, you're not a judge. You didn't do your homework in the pandemic. So now I'm gonna put you in prison during the during COVID, right? Um, there were young Black women activists, teenagers, teen girls who came out and protested for her, but there wasn't a mass public outcry for her that matched anything like what we see for, for Black people who've been killed by police. And so here's where I am on it. I want us to start caring about living Black people and fighting for them as hard as we fight for dead Black people, right? Uh, And I particularly want that. I want us to care for living Black women and girls harder than, you know, and fight for them as hard as we fight for Black girls who, once they are gone, because once they are gone, technically we can achieve justice for them. We can try to bring some justice to their families, but there are Black girls who are here who we can fight for right now. And until we have a more robust conversation about that, then I just don't think, I'm like, well, what are we talking about? You know?
0: Well, Brittany, this was a fascinating thing to me in your book, and I particularly think as a black woman who works on a tremendous black platform, this stood out to me. But you call out the myth of black exceptionalism, which we also know is very linked to this whole idea of America individualism and American exceptionalism. And, and it's a trap that seems especially pertinent to black intellectuals and high achievers and activists, you know, those of us with platforms. As, as you write that the trap and the burden of being exceptional is that your entire identity is wrapped up in being the only one. So, for those of us who are empowered with these kind of platforms, what do you
2: consider our responsibility to be now? Oh, wow. Um, well, I, I think we have a couple of responsibilities. You know, I think that our job is to tell the people the truth as we see it and understand it. I also think we can't be afraid to challenge our own people because we're afraid of what white people will think if we do. Because to me, that's a false unity. It's an easy unity. And, you know, and black people love to talk about, well, we just all need to come together. And it's like, okay, well, even assuming that that's true and I'm not sure that it is, you know, if that coming together means that we have to hide our differences and that we can't talk about these tensions that exist between us, then it's a false unity and it'll fall apart. So when I wrote about black exceptionalism, a part of eloquent rage was really me grappling with the fact I figured out later you know, after it was written, that part of what I was trying to grapple with was the fact that even though I grew up a working class kid and I came from, in some points of my childhood, very harrowing circumstances, I had pretty much followed the kind of rules about Black respectability, that if you, you know, pull your dress down and do your homework and, you know, don't get in any trouble, that the future can kind of be yours. And that, script actually worked out pretty well for my life, but there were so many Black people around me for whom it didn't work out. And I was trying to grapple with what did it mean to be a beneficiary of that approach while not getting on board with the lie at the heart of it, which is that the things that happen to Black people happen because we're undisciplined and because we don't fight hard enough for ourselves. And so challenging Black elitism is also about challenge because To challenge like elite folks is to challenge their own mythography about themselves, that they are there because they're so great, because we're so smart, because, you know, all of this stuff. And it's like all of us, if we really are honest about our communities, know someone who is as smart, if not smarter than us, as talented, if not more talented than us, who did not make it to these spaces. And if we're going to be honest about that, then we've got to grapple. And we like to then say, well, I made better choices. And sometimes it's the case that you had better options, even if they were only moderately better. I just don't like it when we lord our success over other people as though though they could have been us if they had just lived differently. Because even when I read our ancestors writing about this, so many of them are so clear. They say, you don't judge the, the progress of a race by its exceptional men. You judge it by how the everyday folks that get up and go to work every morning are doing. And I take that honestly, and I think, I think we, have to check, we have to check ourselves. Let me say, say one last thing about this. Part of the reason that we're gonna have to have an ethics of checking ourselves is because we're in a moment of great distrust of the black elite. I mean, you know, one of the things that annoys me about being on Twitter, and even it's, hap- I just, so I have a the, one of the blue check marks on Twitter. Now, any of us who do media and journalism know that the, vi- the verification system was literally so people could not hack your account and claim that they were you. But it has become, a, you know, people see it as clout chasing to get that blue check mark. Now, as the kids say, you know, you're doing it for clout. And then I had, I literally got harassed and you know, had a bunch of hate mail and stuff for critiquing Trump earlier in the in the late spring. So I have a Facebook, a blue check mark on Facebook. And anytime I'm in a space where more people don't have those, somebody's like, how can I get a blue check? Why do you got a blue check? Who are you? And so I think people are challenging this idea that there are Black people with blue check marks who get to speak for them. And I think those challenges are going to keep coming. And I think we've got to figure out how we're going to handle that challenge with some integrity. Because folks are saying, who the fuck are you? I don't know you. And why do you get to speak for me and determine what happens in my life? And I think our initial knee-jerk response is a lot of defensiveness. Certainly on my end, it is. And I think we're going to have to figure out I think people are pointing out to us, though, a power dynamic that is interesting, and we're going to have to figure out our relationship to it. And that means that we've got to be honest about about class status, elitism, and access, and the way that it shapes what happens in Black life. And if we're honest, I think that then people can trust us a bit more. And trust is what we're going to need to sort of like challenge this information ecosystem and vortex that we're in. All
0: right. Well,
2: thank you so much, Brittany. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank y'all for having me. I love talking to you both.
0: The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela
1: Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. If you like the show and you want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It'll help other people find the show, which would be so helpful to us. So to close our show, um, I always like to talk about what we're reading uh, right now, today. Uh, while I'm reading about four different books at the moment, the one that I'm enjoying the most is Mary Trump's Too Much and Never Enough, which is about our current president's youth and childhood and his family dynamics. And from a psychological standpoint, it's a very fascinating read. What are you reading, Maisha?
0: You know, uh, Brittany really inspired me, so I'm diving back into Bell Hooks this mm. week. Who, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time with since college, but I have all of her books, and I just feel like the time is ripe as we look at Black women and, and community and democracy and, and our collective power. I think it's a great time to reapproach Bell.
1: All right, so we want to hear from you and to tell us what you're reading. Um, you can hit us up on social media. I am at Black Snob on Twitter and at Belton Danielle on Instagram. Maisha, where can everyone find you? I am at Myesha. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A on Twitter and at Myesha Kai on Instagram. All right. Now you know how to find us. Tell us what you're reading. Come back and check us out on this podcast. And thank you for joining us today with our conversation with Brittany Cooper. Keep it lit.